0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. It is good to be with you here today. Uh, I probably should introduce myself a little bit because you're probably wondering, who is the joker that somehow got his way into the pulpit up front? Uh, I actually uh, have been here for about three years, but I, t- you know what? It's good to be with you, but it's getting better all the time. 8.30 was a little rough, I'll be honest. I'm used to coming in here at night, uh, I stay through the night services and then I'm here on Tuesday nights. I've been called by Mike Gaffney in this community to be the Director of Young Adult Mission and Ministry, which is to say to continue on the great work that University Ministries has been doing and that James B. and Renee were doing with, uh, before they were freed up and sent out by this church to plan a community down at South Lake Union. I work with those in their twenties and thirties and on Tuesday night we have this gathering called Convergence in which we seek to to create a community, a place in which people can discover their gifts, can discover others who will encourage and and challenge them along the way. We've created a space in which we can ask together, what does it mean to bring together things that so often feel like they get separated? Things that we need to seek the convergence of, if if you will. Things like our faith in, in the everyday realities that we face what happens if we could bring together the, the brokenness and the sin that, that so often we discover more and more of in deeper and deeper painful ways as we launch into our careers and move away from school? What happens if we can find where God's forgiveness and grace meets in that? What happens when I, as I discover my gifts and my passions and how that might connect with God's kingdom purposes in this world? It has been for me a, a, a really joyful few years as I've walked along and seen people wake up to the reality of God. And it often causes things that, that you would not expect. And if you were to seek a convergence, some of you know that we have a convergence zone just to the north of us that creates crazy weather systems. That when you have two systems that, that combine together, often they, the, the result is snow ten inches deep that a few miles away there's nothing. The the results are often unpredictable, as God's kingdom often is, that it it cannot be controlled. The results are often creative and dynamic, and that is what I've gotten to witness over the last few years, and it has been my joy to do so. Well, in this series that we've been going through this summer, Danny, last week, brought us the the great story of the man who was born blind from the Gospel of John, and how Jesus comes in and, and reveals that there is a blindness... That goes beyond simply physically not being able to see. And there is sight in which we can be, have our eyes open to what God is doing in our lives. We can realize the one to whom we are called. The one who will change everything. Well, this week, in, in many ways, I would love to simply continue on with what she opened up. For as soon as we have eyes to see and realize this Jesus who has called us and to whom we have actually been called... We pretty soon ter- turn and wonder, to what is it that we have been called? And that is what I would like for us to look at tonight. What is it, that, what happens when our desires, the desires that were given to us at creation, to, to, be, calls, to be stewards of creation with God, to exert influence on this world, the desires to have a sense of purpose, to create. What happens when God gets a hold of those, that His kingdom gets a hold of those, guides, shapes, and transforms it what happens when we begin to understand what does it mean for us to be the church well today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 a, a passage that I have come to dearly love and I know you have as well And so I would encourage you to open up with me Matthew chapter 5 I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 13 it's found on page 786 in your pew bible if you'd like to read along there as well I encourage you to, to, to simply look along as I, as I read You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket. But on a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father in heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, as we look at this passage, it is a passage I love in part because of the imagery. I'm a a visual guy. I love pictures. Pictures often engage our mind in a way that words simply can't. When we begin to imagine what something might be like. And, And Jesus begins by not giving direct instructions to this new band of followers, but by, getting, by saying that you are salt and that, and that you are light. Now, let's, let's just imagine a little bit. Let's see if we can place ourselves here along with these early band of followers. Jesus' ministry had just begun and it had broken out in the weirdest of places. Galilee of the Gentiles. A place that was so known for failure that it was often called the land, a, a place of, of death, of darkness. A place... It really could be described as having a shadow over it. And yet, that is the place God chooses to, to begin his great work. Well, he begins with a simple message, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near, which is to say in many ways, turn. There is a new dynamic at work. You are living your life according to what makes sense with the information that you have. But I want to tell you that there is A new kingdom, a new power, a new dynamic that is crashing into your reality right now. Therefore, turn. You can change. There is a whole new life that has opened up to you. And this message begins a spark in which people begin to come from all over, from north, south, east and west, not only to hear this message, but to to receive healing of all kinds of diseases. There's a crowd that begins to gather, and that is when Jesus sits down and begins to instruct Instruct, and he begins with this, this str- kind of strange group of blessings we call the Beatitudes. Let's be honest. We begin to look at these things that might be called road markers. Uh, markers that let you know that you're on the, on the right road, and yet they strike us as sometimes bizarre at a, at a first look, because blessed are the poor in spirit. What? When has poverty ever been a blessing? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. And then suddenly he turns... And in the original text, we realize that the language here is emphatic. Because we can't miss it. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I don't want you to miss this. You are the most important, valuable, daily ingredients for life to thrive. See, salt and light, the imagery is one that... that His original hearers would not miss. It is shorthand, as imagery so often is for us. There's a saying going around in in the Roman world at that time that there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. And and we can understand that you have to have light for things to grow. You have to have light to see so that you do not stumble. But salt as well was vital. Not only that it adds flavor into food, but more importantly, in an era where there is no refrigeration, it is the only way to stop decay. And so, properly cured meat, especially, would not go bad. It, it could be it could sustain for a long time if if there was the presence of salt. Jesus says, "You are that." Now, if we were to understand this effectiveness, though, we quickly know we see that there are a couple caveats. But If salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That there seem to be these caveats. There's a sense of, you know, you don't hide a lamp under a basket. And you begin to wonder, what's going on? And the thing that we need to hear today, that if we are to live into the very best that God has called us to be as a church, as those who have been called to Jesus into something else, is that we have to hold two distinct dynamics together to seek a convergence, if you will. Pardon the shameless plug. To hold together that we we are, in a sense, that our influence is useless unless it is distinct and it is wasted unless it is used. That if we're to live into the best of it, if this, our influence, as the church of Jesus Christ, is to be effective, it is useless unless it is distinct, and it is wasted unless it is used. So let's take each of these in turn for a moment. The the challenge of distinction. Salt, of course... If we were to look at it, it doesn't particularly lose its saltiness. But it can become mixed with other ingredients, other, other things that look like salt, other dust. There is dust in that era that would be white. And, and it was easy for that to get mixed in. And, and if it gets mixed in, it's not that the salt has particularly lost its saltiness. It's that this substance is no longer particularly good for anything. The, the properties, the elements that make salt particularly useful really get drowned out. And so it is this, that it's not good, and, and not good for anything really means this, that it really doesn't have the power to accomplish what it is designed to accomplish. Its uniqueness has been, in a sense, kind of diluted. And so we have to look out for wh- what is this sense that, in which we have to preserve the purity of the salt. And, and, and there is a troubling warning here. It troubles me. That that though Jesus says that you are the most useful ingredients in the world, basic to the thriving of life, if salt has lost its saltiness, if it has become diluted, mixed with road dust, if you will, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. It is perhaps the heartbreak that we see as we look around the world and and we notice that that though the church is the bearer of good news, that so often it is dismissed. So often there are these moments in which there is really no interest at all, maybe not outright trampling or persecution, but simply just a disinterest that really there is nothing that is different about that particular group, about that particular religion. So if distinction is so important to the power and the effectiveness of what we are called to be as the people of God, what is that distinction? Well, if we take our context seriously, we have to look at the Sermon on the Mount that many people have looked at for years and years and have wrestled with what it means. And yet I think what we have to do is we have to get a hold of the Beatitudes in particular. To see what is it, what is it, what is the distinction? What is it that it needs to be different about us? Now, while we certainly, you will be glad to know, we're not going to go into uh, an extended teaching on the Beatitudes. We could spend a whole series on that. What I want us to do is I want us to do an exercise in which perhaps we just kind of imagine. What would it look like? What would a person look like whose character is the opposite of what is listed here? Because so often when we look at the Beatitudes, we go, you know... Probably along with the first hearers. All right, Jesus, let's be honest. If we were to have any sort of impact whatsoever, it's not because we're going to be mourning, we're poor, and we're meek. I mean, come on. And yet, let's, let's just pause for a moment. If we were to think about people of being lasting impact, what might that look like? And if we were to take the opposite, would that really, would that really develop in us the kind of character to do what we are called to do? So, would you be on the right road if we were to take blessing to impart mean that you are on the right road? Would you be on the right road if you are a person who is open to nothing beyond themselves, whose very best that they can experience only include what they can own, who has a heart that is unbreakable, apathetic, perhaps even cold to what should break our hearts, who wields power wildly, perhaps sometimes unpredictably, and certainly for their own self-interest, whose appetite and thirst go no, no further than simply filling the desires that come across their mind, who are vengeful and hard, allowing no room for the mistakes in others and certainly no compassion for the plight of others, who are people of mixed motives, who simply will be whatever is going to seem the best at the moment, that, that they are often switching all the time. No real identity, whose identity, if anything, is that of domination. People who will simply go with the crowd, who will take the path of least resistance, even if what the crowd is doing is horrible. Is that a person of significant impact in this world? Well, I think we could say no. Even though many of those things are the temptations that we we feel that we have to somehow, if we're going to do something, we have to sort of seize The moment. Let's think about if we were to take the Beatitudes in the same kind of way and just run through them. And ask, could this be? Could there be something about this person? This Beatitude person as a professor of mine up at Regent, Daryl Johnson, who you probably know, will talk about what happens if we look at someone who is gospelized. He made up his own word. If we were to take a, a person for whom the gospel is taking root in their lives, Would this person be on the right road? A person who is open to something bigger than themselves and simply what they can bring. Someone who heart breaks for the brokenness in the world, who controls their power and focuses for the sake and the good of others, who hungers and thirsts to see the world put right, to see grace and truth brought together, who is merciful, who is authentic, who is an agent of peace and who is willing to stand for what is right, even if that means persecution. See, so often when we think about what does it mean to be in the the church, we quickly come to this place where we realize in some ways it is beyond us. And when we come to that place, it is a gift for us. It is when we need to hear the power behind the pure grace of Jesus' statement that you are Not you ought to be, not Sunday you will be, not you should be, but you are. not because of what you bring, but because of what I bring and what I am doing in and through you, because of what my Holy Spirit is doing as it is transforming your inner being and character as you come to trust that you are my child, holy and dearly loved, gifted with everything that you need. You are salt, you are. Light. The temptation for us really is the temptation, same temptation that faced Jesus. And praise the Lord, in, in, in His humanity, in His humility, Jesus demonstrates for us what this would look like. If we were to go back a couple of chapters, we see that Jesus is baptized. And at that moment is the great affirmation of the Father who says, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus hasn't done anything. There's nothing particularly unique about Jesus at this point. He hasn't accomplished anything. In fact, he doesn't even have any particular titles. His family background is in question. He hasn't done anything. And yet what we see as Jesus goes throughout his ministry is that he is going to live out of that identity. An identity that will be challenged immediately. As he is led into the desert and, as you know, faces these famous temptations of the devil... Temptations that really are aimed at saying, are you truly the Son of God? Is God truly looking out for you? Are you truly secure in Him? And so they are the same temptations that we face, that under pressure, that in the moment, to accomplish the things that we feel that God has called us to, that we begin to put our trust not in our Heavenly Father, not in the grace that has been poured out on us, but in the immediate tools that we look around and we see that are so, so powerful in those around us. So Jesus has to say, it is what is most important here, relevance. Henri Nouwen reflects on these as he thinks about leadership for the future. And he says, the primary temptations for Jesus are our relevance, are the spectacular, are quick and easy power and a demonstration of that. Now there is no doubt that Jesus is called to do the spectacular, to be extremely relevant and to wield power unlike we'd ever seen before. But it will never come as He shortchanges His relationship with His Father. See, the wellspring for us of a life in which God has called us to significant impact to be His people and His church, the wellspring is the same wellspring that, that we come to as we come to faith for the very first time. As Paul would summarize in his great summary of theological Summary in Ephesians, you have been saved by grace. There is nothing that you can do so that you can't boast. And yet as he goes on, he says, But you are also God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This leads us to the second point, that that if really the wellspring is our relationship with God, our identity with God, That it is pure gift and that it is only out of that relationship that springs the power for us to be the people that God has called us to be. Far beyond what we could even do. The second part of this that we have to hold together is that we are God's workmanship and he has created us for a specific purpose within this world that he takes us extremely seriously. And so if our influence is useless and less distinct, it is also wasted and less used. Which I think is more of an encouragement than it perhaps is a challenge. Yes, we should hold up our light and let it shine. And yet it is God saying, I want you to know that regardless of what you may feel or think or hear, that your little light is powerful. I spent some time in Austria. A few years ago, and it was a, a time in which we hiked through the Alps, and, and then we had, had teachers, and they would do Bible teaching with us, and there was some leadership stuff in there. I mean, it was, it was about as great as you can get. I mean, hiking, Alps, cows with bells, a little Bible in there. Awesome. Well, One of the things that we did is we went into a, an ice cave, and it took us hours to crawl back finally into a huge cavern that, that we certainly couldn't see because it was so dark. You could not see the hand in front of your face. It is the kind of darkness that we rarely experience, especially as we live in urban centers. But it is so unbelievably dark, and it is in that place where they light a match, one tiny little match, and suddenly an enormous cavern is beginning to be illuminated. But Jesus is saying, Listen, I am not going to hide you under a bushel. There is no way to hide you. Your influence will spread out into all of the world. So too, if we were to look at salt, salt is totally useless unless it is put out into food, unless it is rubbed into meat. Only then can its preserving effect do any good whatsoever. And so there is a great affirmation that that God wants to do something in and through you in every place in society. Every place in which you have a particular sphere of influence, your neighborhood, your family, your profession... There is no place in which God does not want his influence spread. There is no place in which he says, Eh, that's okay. We'll let them do it. they got to make a buck. But I don't really care about this until they get into church. No, my influence is for the whole world. And God has called us absolutely into the, that place. It is here where we realize that, that we are not called for ourselves, but there is a claim upon us in a, in a sense, a claim of place. That Seattle lays claim to us. That our places that we work lay claim to us. For we are the salt. We are the light of that place. And if we are not, if we do not fulfill our calling, there will be no salt, no light. There will be no benefit of what God wants to do there. We have all been providentially placed. I believe that firmly. And so there is no job that is too menial. There is no job, no place that is so God forsaken. It is God loved and He is seeking to redeem everything. Our classrooms, our schools, our laboratories, our places of business, our places of work, where we serve food, where we make coffee, where we teach. Every place God is seeking His redemption there. So often when we think about what does it mean for us to be the church and and what can I do and how can God really use me, sometimes the questions, and I I run into this all the time, is I've got to find that special, perfect place. That God's got to call me someplace else that, that is really meaningful. And yet when we begin to understand what Jesus is saying as He uses salt and light is that it is not so much about finding the right place as waking up to the place where we are. Which is not to say that we never move, but it is to say that God wants to do something in and through you right where you are. I love John Stott as he's commenting on this. He, he reflects, and he says, you know, so often the church has made the mistake of, uh, of blaming certain sectors of culture, certain sectors of society, even sometimes particular vocations, and saying, that's just God forsaken. Eh, that's kind of worldly, but when you want to get serious about God, you come into another area, and he goes, man, we should turn in a sense, the spotlight, back on ourselves. We have no room to complain about the decay and the darkness in the world, for the only way that there won't be decay, there won't be darkness, is if we are there, salt and light. One of the things that I love to do is, from time to time I visit Kairos, which some of you probably know, it's a a group of men and women who are especially engaged in business, who are seeking to find out what does it mean to be faithful in this place, what does it mean to be to be salt and light, to take my ministry seriously in this particular office building or or profession, it is there that I simply sit as one who often teaches on a Tuesday night, and I just listen and I'm encouraged as I hear people begin to say, here's what I'm struggling with on how to be truthful, to be a, a person of my word, when it seems like everybody that isn't just gets ahead. Maybe you know what that's like. Here's what it means to begin to maybe think about faith differently and our business then differently according to what God would have to say. I I think of writers like Dennis Bakke who is a Christian who has begun to think what would it be like to to think about work being joyful and not simply drudgery? What would it mean to think about the process of what we do in a redemptive way in which work is not simply uh, a curse upon us but is the place in which we actually are, are created are designed, are built to have significant impact, what would it mean for us to begin to think about things like how we go about contracts in in a way that is wholly different, that might even seem crazy? These are the kinds of stories I hear, the kinds of stories that I love. Because God's kingdom is breaking out in places that might seem totally unusual to us. I think of the things like the arts, and, and what would it mean for us as those who are gifted with artistic ability or or in photography, who can help us to visualize, to help us to see, perhaps even like Matt Whitney, as he is is a part of our community, as I've asked him to hang some paintings outside. As he engages us in questions, as we begin to look at that and go, perhaps I'm going to be able to... uh, There's something I see in there that is is opening my eyes to, to the beauty that I've missed, that I've walked by every single day. Perhaps even to the brokenness that I've become numb to but God is calling me to play a redemptive role in. As we begin to see the wonder sometimes, and I think photography sometimes, so, it helps us capture the wonder of what God wants to do. The wonder of the beauty of this world. I would want to switch up as we close. Maybe let me, think, let, me, let me play another image off for you. I wonder... If perhaps, one of the images that we might use are these windows that we sit in every day that perhaps we forget, but yet surround us. It is a story of God's work that surrounds us. that It brings not only beauty into this place, this sacred place, and all sacred places are always beautiful places. That it brings a beauty in here, and yet embedded in here is not just colors and beautiful glass, but a story of God's action in the world in which we hear and we see very very plainly that there is a brokenness, that there is sin, that there are impacts. And yet God has not left us alone, but He has broken in and He's working His power in this world in small ways to, to bring forgiveness and grace, to draw us back to Himself when we turned our back on Him. Well, we have the benefit of this. And yet perhaps... What we are called to as the church is to be the stained glass windows in the world around us, to illuminate what is good and true and beautiful. To point out what is not right, what is not okay to simply shrug our shoulders to, perhaps to illuminate for people, maybe for the very first time, that there is a God who is seeking after them, that there is another way, that there is a greater call that they have on their life beyond simply their job. I love being in this place, because over the last three years, I've seen how this place has sought to, imperfectly and yet amazingly at the same time, live into what it means that every member is a minister, and so ministries, things like Side by Side, have become a regular part of our church because of the call of a couple of young men. That ministries have been launched out into greater Seattle over the years, that that we have have had a redemptive influence in our neighborhood. I hear story after story after story of those who have simply woken up to their place, to what what God wants to do in their lives. We have a great history here, and yet God has not done. I wonder, what is it that He wants to do in and through us? As we hold together at the same time that it is God's character that is ultimately effective in our lives, and yet He takes very seriously our place. What would happen... How would the kingdom begin to spread as we begin to open ourselves and avail ourselves to that? I think it would be creative. I think it would be dynamic. I think it would be unstoppable. And I think we would be in for some huge surprises. The kind that we're longing for. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word to us, for these images, and for how you call us. Not only to yourself, but to purpose. Lord, may your kingdom, may, may your power, may your love, may your grace flow through us that we would be a part of bringing out the very best of Seattle. We thank you for this place and the places in which we are at. Open our eyes, Lord, both to your reality. May, may we not have to feel the burden is on ourselves. May we simply open our hands to you, but then will you open our eyes to what you have right in front of us. In your name, amen.